This is Art Moves. Let me tell you a story. The interesting thing about living in New York City is that you don't know necessarily what's next door. I spent a lot of time in Long Island City and on Vernon Boulevard, but I'm a mother, so I spend most of my time at Costco. Yes, I'll admit it, I do go to Costco. So one Saturday, I decided that I wanted to do a little exploring in the neighborhood, and I happened on to this place it was the Noguchi Museum. And I felt like, wow, what a treasure. This isn't the kind of experience I would have expected in what looks like an industrial center in Long Island City. And what impressed me most about that day was the feeling that came over me as I walked into the place. I could feel an energy that is uncommon to many spaces that I've been in in New York City. I walk into this magnificent structure and then there's this artwork. So I'm looking at it and I'm trying to get the vibe of it. And I said, gee, what am I looking at exactly? And luckily there were docents that were there that were more than happy to talk to me about the sculptures, and the artist, and his story. It was so serene, I felt like I could have broken to a meditation right then and there. That's what I loved about it. But what was really amazing was the location. Who would have expected such a treasure in Long Island City across the street from Costco? That was a time when I have to say, art moved me. I'm Tony Williams. And this is Eli Kozlanski. And welcome to Art Moves. Now, we are delighted to have Brett Littman with us today. Brett Littman is the director of the Isamu Noguchi Foundation and Garden Museum in Long Island City. But there's so much to talk about when we speak about Brett. And Brett, I'm going to give you an opportunity to just tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey, if you wouldn't sure. mind. Sure. Um, I have a little bit of an unusual journey in the art world. Uh, I grew up in New York. Uh, my father was a photographer, so I grew up around looking at art books and going to art shows. Um, but I went to Stuyvesant High School, so I was a oh. math and science kid. Um, ended up at UC San Diego to study pre-med. Uh, got to Ochem, as many people do, and decided I didn't really want to be a doctor. Right, the organic chemistry piece. Exactly. Yes, yes, yes. And had a phone call with my parents where I said, I think I'm going to be a philosopher and a poet. And I remember my mom was not very happy about that call. But, you know, in the end, it was quite interesting because by studying philosophy and poetry, I did a lot of writing and I uh, came across many interesting ideas. Um, and I never actually pursued an art historical degree. I, I simply graduated. I made films in Texas for two years and then came to New York and ended up working in the nonprofit world. Um, so my trajectory is uh, maybe a little bit unusual, but... And some of the places in the nonprofit world. Yeah, I worked in, uh, started at Urban Glass in uh, Brooklyn. Fabulous place. Yeah, which I think yes. we met way mm -hmm. back when in 1996. Absolutely, we're telling then. our age, but that's exactly yeah. when we met, yes. <laughs> oh, you I know you two met. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so and uh, then I went off to be the co-director of Dudonne, a paper-making facility in Soho. Uh, then I went... Uh, to PS1, Moment PS1, and I was there for four years as the deputy director, and then back to Soho, uh, to the Drawing Center for 11 years, and now back to Long Island City, uh, to the Noguchi Museum, where I've been director for about two years. So we met some time ago, we had a delightful interview in your office, uh, where you were cobbling together an iPhone slash recorder thing for some reason, I don't know why, and there was a number of, a few different topics that we talked about that still resonates today, and uh, one of them, you talked about this idea of the way we depict things, and not just architecturally, but in drawing. At that point, you know, you were the director of the drawing center. That you said that was sort of out of sync with contemporary times, and there might have been better ways to depict architectural projects. Mm -hmm. I think that's one thing you talked about. Yeah, I think Eli. At that time, I was maybe working on a show called the Projective Drawing, which was going to, uh, which did happen actually at the Austrian Cultural Forum about two and a half years ago, and right. then it ended up being shown again in Paris. And I think what I was um, really thinking about was a particular architectural uh, historian, uh, Robin Evans, uh, who was uh, thinking about this idea that maybe two-dimensional drawing cannot really explain architecture, the experience of architecture. Mm -hmm. Geometry is just not enough um, in two dimensions. Uh, so the idea of how do we make something present uh, in space 
Now, one can draw in three dimensions. One can use all kinds of techniques uh, right. throughout the history of architectural drawing to render space. Um, but I think his point was that drawing always fails because the idea of space is spatial. You have to walk through something to truly understand it. So he felt that drawing kind of fails uh, as a way to render the world. And what day was that? Uh, he wrote that book in the 70s. In the uh, 70s, yeah. Because right. now it, we have 3D renderings and VR and AR. Which, all, which was beginning already. I mean, beginning. you know, AutoCAD was already there. Um, but I think that the issue is it's not about um, making that space flat uh, and seeing it that way. And even though we can make perspectival drawings, and that's been happening since the Renaissance, um, I think his idea really was that there was something fundamentally that fails about drawing right. in relationship to architecture. And so my show really wanted to understand how artists, contemporary artists, architects, um, even shamans, I had a, a shaman from the Peruvian Amazon mm. in the show, how they would actually use drawing to project other ideas. Hmm. In order to understand hmm. their drawings, you might have to cite their drawing in culture, in mm -hmm. anthropology, uh, in the idea of shapes beyond geometry that the mind can't understand. Right. That's interesting. So it's not and the so geometry itself that does it. It's also what's it connected to culturally, anthropologically, correct. Correct. And so socially. Interesting. What I w really want to understand is how sight is connected to all the senses and how if we can work on that and to maybe think about the, the experience of looking at drawings from uh, bringing our whole mind and all of our senses together, mm. maybe we would be able to spatialize in quotes things in different mm. ways. So do you think anybody's doing that in some ways? You feel like sort of at least I think the artists that, that I chose, I mean, I had uh, 10 in the show in the Austrian Cultural Forum and another group of artists uh, in the show in France are pointing in that direction. I've made up the term, the projective drawing. He called it the projective cast. So uh -huh. I would say that it's not a, a it's not a group of people that are working in some way towards a goal, um, but it was something that was speculative yeah. and interesting to me. I'd love to talk to you about curation. You mm -hmm. know, apparently, I mean, not apparently, You've been involved with some 75 ex exhibitions and perhaps many more. Mm -hmm. I'd like to understand the, the whole idea of how you got into curation and what it is in terms of your thinking around it. Well, I come to curating late in my career. Mm -hmm. um, I started curating probably really officially when I was at the Drawing Center when I became director at about the age of 38. So <laughs> since I didn't have uh, an art history background, you know, I wasn't necessarily asked to curate, although I have been writing since 1996. So I would say that for me, through my, my art writing, my writing about fashion, about design and architecture and photography and many mm -hmm. other things, uh, and craft, which I wrote a lot about, I learned how to think through things, and mm -hmm. I learned how to tell stories. And I was always a writer. I mean, I liked writing. I was a philosophy and poetry major, as I mentioned. So when I started to curate, I think what I'm always interested in, and I take a very different approach than other maybe more academic curators, I'm interested in what artists would want to see. What can I show what them? What artists would want to yes. see? What about someone like me who consumes, who wants to experience? Absolutely. The same thing? I'm, I'm interested in a general audience right. as well. Mm -hmm. But I think that my sense is, is mm -hmm. that when, particularly at the Drawing Center, which is where I curated many of my shows, my constituency was artists. That's an mm -hmm. artist centric organization. Mm -hmm. uh, it was based in Soho and it has a reputation of doing things first and showing things that no place showed uh, before. So when I would work on a show like I did an exhibition with Ferran Adria, the very famous Sp uh, Spanish chef from El Bulli who was the number one chef for 10 years, I did a show of his visual ideas about food. Oh, yeah, he did a lot of drawings. Yeah, he made a lot of drawings. Brother and Stuart, his brother too. It, it was a very controversial show um, in a way. Many artists were saying, why would I want to go see a chef who doesn't really know how to draw very well? <laughs> and I said, because he's changed the way that we think about food through drawing and through thinking visually. So my concept really was... I wanted to be able to bring things to people that, and, and to show them things from a different perspective. I did do shows that were more quote unquote art historical, and strangely at the Drawing Center, I actually did the shows that were dealing with 14th, 15th, 16th century uh, art more than my academic curators, uh, because I was interested in the idea of history also, and how do we see things from other perspectives. That's a funny comment right. by artists mm -hmm. about drawing, because <laughs> Rauschenberg was a terribly good draftsman. That's why he started using prints and stuff. Yeah, well, and at the Drawing Center, Eli, you know, one of the things that I also thought about, it wasn't about skill. I mean, of course, I'm very interested in wonderful drawings and great drawings, but my goal there was not to show great drawings in quotes. Right. My goal was to basically think about how drawing is dynamic in contemporary culture. I, I like the idea that you're talking about shaping thinking around yeah. this, you know? Talk a little bit more about that. Well, I think that for me, the basis of curating is shaping thinking. I mean, mm -hmm. it's it's not about just putting something on the wall. 
Um, this is so interesting. Yeah. I mean, I'm a good interior decorator. I can come to your house yeah. and probably set up your chairs and make it make it look nice. I and, want you. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm come, I'll you come over, no problem. Right, right. I'm happy to do it. I, I have some skills in that area. But I think that, you know, there are many curators yeah. for whom maybe curation is more like scenography, you know, like setting up a, a theater yeah, right. design. Mm -hmm. right. um, you know, there are many people who are interested in chronology and in the idea of the micro arguments in art history. I mean, for me, I want you to come to a show and to say, I've never thought about it in this way. Hmm. Um, and that's really my goal. Uh, mm -hmm. So when I make exhibitions, I generally try to use that as the basis for how I'm gonna put the show together, what artists I'm going to work with, what kind of work I'm going to show. So I've worked with many, many mm -hmm. famous artists, but I've taken things from them that maybe no one has ever seen. How do you know if you're, you're successful in that? Meaning, how do you know that how, or how do you measure? Aside from the thing like, you know, press. And exactly. Right. But I'm talking about, you know, like that, that or, I'm back to that ordinary person mm -hmm. and shaping yes. thinking of that. Yeah. But thank you. I mean, interestingly today, I mean, I, I think it's, mm -hmm. you know, curation is a little bit of a lonely pursuit as writing mm -hmm. is a lonely pursuit. I mean, I would say I've written, I don't know, 300 <laughs> articles and essays and catalog essays. I mean, wow. rarely does anyone ever say like, wow, that was a great essay. I really loved reading it. I mean, when you curate a show, you know, you, you get, get reviews. You get but the accolades, I think right. it is actually on Instagram now hmm. today that one can kind of get a sense of how people react hmm. uh, to things. And it's so, right. so immediate. Mm -hmm. So I know it's not about just likes. I mean, if I see people post like, wow, I saw this show at the and Drawing Center and it really changed my sense of Neo Rauch's work. I never even knew that he made drawings. I mean, that for me is the kind of confirmation that I'm going down the right path. Um, I think in general, the other group of people that I find to be um, important to validate what I'm doing, again, is artists because mm -hmm. I feel that I've learned art history through talking to artists. Mm -hmm. I've been very lucky to talk to artists now for 20 plus years wow. in my career and to stand sometimes alongside them while they're making things, which is also very rare. Right. One of the other things I said in our last chat was this idea about going to these artist studio who, you know, make the statement that they're raising the bar and they're doing something unique and maybe because they either lack the knowledge or mm -hmm. appreciation for art history that they're really right. I think not really, but yeah, I think what, Eli, the context of that was that maybe I said I <laughs> okay. went to I went to some artist studios and uh, the young. Are we artists, in trouble here? For no, 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 no. <laughs> okay. no I, I think that, that I said that I went to some studios, young artists, and they said we're fighting against modernism. Or I have invented an abstraction, and I thought, really? I mean, you you're fighting against modernism. So what is modernism? And they'd give me some kind of hashed over third rate right. version of it. And I said, it's great to fight against modernism, but you have to understand what modernism is. And you then go. you have to tell me, <laughs> you know, something that you're doing that is actually going to do that. Now, by the way, postmodernism has already done that. So, right. you know, we're now in maybe post-human art, I mean, whatever that might mean. Yeah, so, post, post. you know, and then the other thing was that, you know, if you want to say you've invented something, that's great. There are still possibilities to make innovation. But I think that it's it's you're within a continuum of art history and you're in a continuum of history in general. So it's good to understand where you fit. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's, it's I the, think it's that the, was the point that yeah. I was making. Which um, you, yeah. I mean, it resonated tremendously with me because it's like, right. Because like, how can you really make those statements if you're not really in touch and have mm -hmm. a broad knowledge of what the continuum is and the history of it? Not to say you can't make something new and fresh and can raise the bar. Right. And that's a big thing to be able to raise the bar. So maybe th think about something else about that, which is this idea of like, it brought th this question to mind of what is art of this time. 21st century, of this mm -hmm. time, not just in it. And I was reading a variety of museum definitions, we talked about mm -hmm. this before, of what they consider to be contemporary art, and it was contemporary art in our time. Mm -hmm. And that made me think back to the discussion we had, and I say, right, but that's not raising the bar, and that's not of the time. Mm -hmm. Just like you couldn't do photography work before the invention of photography. And that led me to this idea is, and a question, is are we on a cusp of a new renaissance? If you look at the confluence of technology, depiction, materials, mm -hmm. Van the Black, all this stuff, coupled with you know a generation that are you know digital natives, etc. So, well, on the one side, I mean, I think through the advent of things like microscopes and, mm. of course, our ability to see things in a micro level, we have abstraction, which is mm -hmm. maybe the natural outcome of that from a very physical thing and a, an ability to see things in a way that we were never able to see them before. Um, on the flip side, maybe the new technology, I mean, we still haven't really 
broken out of the idea of the icon. I mean, we're still making images. Mm -hmm. We've been making images for 35,000 years since there have been cave paintings. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but maybe with the advent of AR and VR, we might be able to experience things differently in our bodies. There, there may be different ways of seeing things. Um, there's surely a lot of activity around that. I'm not sure that I've seen anything that really pushes me over the edge to say, I want to, you know, just do that. I'm working on a big project for Freeze at Rockefeller Center. I'll curate this big sculpture park. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yes. And yeah. I'm going to put uh, a, a virtual reality piece in the middle of the skating rink, a 40-foot tower. Fabulous. Yeah. Um, but I don't have to build it. But you'll be able to put your iPhone, uh, you know, open your iPhone on an app and see this thing that exists but only exists in the ether. Wow. <laughs> yeah, right. kind of virtual, know. like you say, completely right. virtual. So, you know, it's a totally different way of thinking about sculpture. Right. Yes. I'm really intrigued by a lot of what you're saying and not always exposed to this kind of thinking. Mm -hmm. How do you expose this thinking to much younger, diverse, and under-resourced, and artists coming from those kinds of communities. You're talking about people who would not, would not normally exactly. show up at a gallery exactly. or a museum right. show, right? right. That's a question. Exactly. Especially Meaning, considering where the museum, where the Gucci Museum is located. Right, it just yeah. feels as though, you know, the conversation is to the over here, and then the, some of the people that might really benefit from but, thinking like that, from being exposed to what you're talking about, you know. Well, I think throughout How my do you career, bridge it? Bridge it, I, I've it. always mm -hmm. been someone who's interested in mentorship. I've mm -hmm. given lots of tours to uh, community groups, to schools, um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, on my off time. Um, I've really tried to make sure that when I speak in public, um, I try to be as accessible as I can, even if my ideas are um, I, esoteric, I mean, in some ways, you know, I mean, but at the end of the day, I mean, even at Noguchi Museum, for instance, we have a project called TAB, which is a teens that come to the museum. They work with us for a year. Every year that we have a new group, I meet with them twice. I tell them my story. Um, mm -hmm. Last year was the first time that I met with them. And several of the students came up to me afterwards and said, it's really refreshing to hear that you could be a museum director without you know, going through the traditional path of, exactly. of doing that. And right. to be frank, mm -hmm. I would say 30 years ago, if you met me and you said you'll be a museum director, mm -hmm. I'd say no way. Right. I mean, it wasn't even on my radar as something that I could do. Right. So, you know, I would say, Tony, that for me, it's really about, I enjoy that interaction. I think all museum directors, all curators, you know, it, of course we have to deal with our VIPs and our mm -hmm. boards and all of mm -hmm. these other things. But in terms of diverse ideas and diverse people, the beauty of art is that, it is, if you can explain it it's well. It's transcendent in a lot yeah, of Yeah, and people, I mean, the th you know, people ask me, what's your favorite part of your job? And I say, giving tours. And they mm. say, really, mm -hmm. why? Mm -hmm. And I said, because basically the thing that I love is when I give a tour and someone comes up to me and says, you know, I've never been, a I never thought of it that way. Mm -hmm. you, you've, op you've told me that, something th that totally changes the way that I think about this. That's what I live for. I mean, that's what I do my job for, really, at the end of the day. And I can see you're really, really good at that. No. Now, let's talk a little, a bit about the museum. Mm -hmm. What's your vision? What are your plans for it? Well, the Noguchi Museum is in one of the most interesting nonprofits in the world. Um, it is, if you don't mind, I'll just give a, a brief little history. Oh, I would love for you to yeah. do that. because. Uh, and also, mm -hmm. I do want to say that we view the Costco as across the street from us, uh, just, to, <laughs> just to be clear. But um, that's okay. <laughs> that's right. I'm a mom. I know, I know, I understand. Um, so, you know, Noguchi was an artist who was um, obviously quite well known. He was living in Greenwich Village in the 40s and 50s, uh, but he was buying a lot of his materials. He was working with marble and slate and aluminum out in Long Island City because as you know, that was an area for light manufacturing and also for materials. Mm -hmm. In 1959, he uh, stumbled across a small studio, which is across the street from Museum, which we still own, and he bought that studio and moved in and built an apartment there, which actually still exists mm -hmm. as well. He ended up looking at the building that we're in for about mm, a decade before he was able to put together the money to buy it. And he basically, at that time, I think understood his position in art history. He was a person who collaborated with incredible people. Mm -hmm. His best friend was Buckminster Fuller. He worked with Martha Graham since 1930 doing right. sets. sets. You know, yeah. he yeah. was friends with Edward Steichen, the photographer. Mm -hmm. He uh, had an affair with Frida Kahlo in 1936 mm -hmm. in Me Mexico City and hung out with Trotsky. Mm -hmm. He's kind of like Zelig. He just pops up. Mm -hmm. He was the only artist ever to work with Brancusi in a studio in 1927. So Noguchi was someone who was aware of his own legacy. And he was really the first American. Did he not create it in a lot of ways? I mean, um, he, I think, in, yes. I mean, yes, of course, he, he was right. great at his own personal mythology. <laughs> and he was a very active participant in intellectual circles. And his reputation waxed and waned, even during his lifetime. But I would say that Noguchi had a real sense that 
he wanted to collect his work and he wanted to make that gift to the public. Hmm. So he bought the building in 1972. Later, he added to the building. And in 1984, before he died, he's the first artist ever to open up a museum dedicated to the artist's work in the world. Right, which is really interesting. You know, one might say arrogant, but it's not. Yeah, I don't think well, it's... Well, I mean, no, I think but you know, artists, mean, have, artists have to think about legacy. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think that Noguchi, in many ways, was incredibly entrepreneurial. He understood what the future might look like. And I think that for him, he... So we own 3,500 of the 5,000 works that Noguchi made. So just give a sense that, you know, we own about three-fifths of his mm-hmm. output. There are very few artists that wouldn't sell three-fifths of their work in their lifetime. Right. He hated selling works to museums because he felt that they just went into a closet and they wouldn't come back out. So right. for Noguchi, his idea was, I am interested in how sculpture interacts in the environment, in space. So the, the thing that mm-hmm. you said when you went in, that kind of serene, right. mindful, just, right. beautiful. Crisp and clear. Exactly. Of, it felt like a clear energy. I don't know any other way of expressing well, that. Well, Noguchi spent many years in Japan studying Japanese gardens and mm-hmm. studying the ideas of kind of Eastern philosophy and understood how to achieve that kind of space. Mm-hmm. He is a genius when it comes to placing things. And I think that he really was only interested in the space between his sculptures. The sculptures are just simply markers for us to perceive ourselves in some way. I mean, and I think this is the way that he thinks. So the museum is set up and still exists under Noguchi's own layout. Mm-hmm. I mean, the whole first floor in the garden, those things have not changed uh, probably since he put them down in 1984. I mean, sometimes we do lend those works out. So when I have to think about what the future looks like, I have to think about Noguchi, first and foremost. I'm running now a museum. It's the first time that I've done this. I'm running a a museum that is a single artist foundation. So I'm the estate. I'm the foundation. It's challenging, And eh? I'm the museum. Right. Um, Yeah, it is. I find that really challenging, right? Yeah. But, you know, I've been in a couple of places, like the Drawing Center, where people said, I left PS1, which is a very multidisciplinary place, pretty free, wild, uh, you know, open place, making a lot of interesting cultural history. To go to the Drawing Center, people were like, oh, you're just going to focus on drawing. It's going to be terrible. And I was like, you know what? Actually, it's fantastic to have Mm -hmm. focus when you can do that. And I said, I've got 5,000 years of, of image making. Now that I can work with, it's, so, probably, it's probably more. I mean, it's the oldest art form. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I mean, if you want to Cave talk track. about Lascaux, I mean, yeah. sure, or Chauveau, I mean, you might go to all the way back thirty-five thousand years. But the point being that you know maybe the limitations are good. The beauty of the Noguchi Museum for me, and the beauty of Noguchi is that he's a polymath. He's someone who works in uh, design, uh-huh. in architecture, in landscape architecture, in art, in theater. He had ideas about the future. Mm-hmm. I mean, so mm-hmm. he's a, pr- and also I think his values are incredibly interesting. Speak about those, please. Okay. Yeah. Well, you know, I've been thinking a lot about this. I mean, I may be running a museum, of course, that has legacy and artworks, and we are about the aesthetics, but I actually think that maybe the future of the organization might be about values. The mm-hmm. values of Noguchi are that it's mindful. Love that part. That oh my it's a museum right. that is really based on this idea of the harmony between nature and art. It's Noguchi himself is hybrid. I mean, he's Japanese American, born Japanese American at a time. His mother that was, was Irish, I believe. Irish, I yes. absolutely mm-hmm. Irish American, but he is an American. <laughs> and you know, many people. I mean, you can imagine growing up before World War II as Japanese American. He was maligned in Japan when he mm-hmm. moved there as a child, and when he came back to the U.S., he was considered Oriental. And his whole life... Twist in between, yeah. Yeah, is, and we talk about now this kind of idea of, of mixed marriage and hybrid identity, which is yeah, so important but yes. mm-hmm. you know, to the cultural mm-hmm. world that we're in today. He's a real avatar for that. Well, Generation Z is the most multicultural generation ever. Right? So Absolutely. It's but I want to talk a little bit about what you said, uh, this, and you sort of reacted to this, about the fact that there's a single artist and it's arrogant, blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah. The other side of the coin, you think about it, when they have to do with shows like that, it takes them three to five years to put it together and get collectors to agree and stuff like that. And it's also about being accessible to the public. If you look at what the warehouses in Switzerland, you have billions of dollars of work, beautiful mm-hmm. artwork of Picasso's and stuff. Nobody's no seeing sees. it. Mm-hmm. So here's this great opportunity to show this cohesive body of work by this unique artist in a way that's almost like, it's very unique in a lot of ways. Yeah, and you, you've spoken to this, but you know, it's interesting that you have to be inspired by his work in order to promote it and to keep this whole organization or this cultural institution flourishing. Any challenges with that? No, the great thing about Noguchi is that as you dig deeper, there's so much there. I mean, I've been learning so much about even just the American history. 
and the history of ideas. Mm, I think for me, the thing that is absolutely fascinating is that however, whatever the future of the organization will be, and, and the future is going to be that we are going to build a new building across the street. We do have some real oh, estate. Oh, wow. Wonderful. Um, we announced mm-hmm. that in mm-hmm. April, and it will be a $6 million archive building because our building flooded during Sandy. So mm. we can no longer store anything in the basement, and we had to move a lot of our sculptures off-site. So it's very complicated for us to put shows back together. And we're also going to open up the studio and the apartment uh, for the first time ever. It's very important for me because we've gone from 28,000 visitors to about 80,000 visitors a year. And I think our museum, the metrics of success there are not going to be more visitors, although we're happy to have as many visitors as we can. The museum is set up to be a place that is a contemplative place to see. So the the idea of crowds, like at the MoMA level, the museum would break. Mm -hmm, It's mm -hmm. not a place where you can have a thousand people in a day. But we do have to address the demographics of our neighborhood, which is rapidly changing. And as you know, if you've looked at Long Island City, it now looks like Tokyo. Uh, Where we are in Astoria, there's going to be 10,000 units of housing built probably in the next decade. So what's the demographic breakdown now of story? Primarily Greek, wasn't it? Uh, no, actually, it's uh, now highest percentage is Hispanic. Hispanic. Uh, Spanish-speaking Hispanic uh, wow. residents from a v- wide variety of Central America, South America. And then you have some Greeks and still a very, very, very mixed community. Right. You mentioned this, the visitors. Now, of course, you, of course, do need and want visitors, mm-hmm. but you want to protect their experience, I yes. think. Is that kind of what you're... I mean, I have the luxury of being in a museum where it's maybe the quality of the experience of looking over the quantity of people. And that's something that I would really value and I probably wouldn't want to change, although Mm -hmm. I do understand that we may need to have some kind of spaces in which they can go that are not directly in the museum. For instance, if we open the studio and we did a program there, now we would have another gallery space, another space for people to see. Uh, Eventually, we might build other kinds of buildings you know, that would accommodate a cafe or a shop. Since we do run the design business, it's important for us to have uh, those things front and center. Now, the integration of technology, and I'm going to throw this, pitch this over to you, Eli. Because okay. uh, that's his, that's, that's yeah. his expertise. But in- integrating technology, I didn't see that, but I wasn't necessarily looking for that. Mm. But how, how do you see that interplay? And well, I'm asking for it. Yeah. Yeah, right, I mean, it's interesting the, technology right. museums because, you know, in some sense you could submit that technology works best in science centers, natural history museum. There's always a challenge in art museum because you don't want to have a mediation between the person and the object. And the feeling is in some ways that by having something like an iPad or a VI, actually I saw this in the rem, in the Rembrandt exhibit in the Stagley, you know, which are people just you know using their iPad instead of looking at the work. But I think there's another dimension to it, which you point to, which is like accessibility. I think you know, mm-hmm. and like the thing about I think it's important to know, you know, Noguchi's background or why this, why he created the shapes he did or what inspired him. Could you talk a little bit about that? Well, I mean, th- this is a real struggle for us. Gucci didn't want any labels. So when you come into our museum, we have no wall labels. Um, you can pick up card that has all of the names and some brief descriptions of the work, but we don't provide any mediation. The museum itself for many years did not allow photography. We now allow photography so people can Instagram, but even that creates some problems and issues. We had a show of Akari, the paper lanterns that Noguchi did, and I mean, <laughs> I had some funny experiences. I walked out, I mean, there were a lot of fashion shoots that were happening there, but of course they were all done not by asking our permission. One day I went out and there was a pregnant woman basically in her panties and bra just dancing in the middle of the cloud of the Akaris. Oh, now <laughs> and that's I said, a sight for very said, sore eyes. This is great, but, <laughs> but right, maybe you but, should have asked us first. Yeah, no <laughs> so, I mean, you know, but it was, th- these kinds of things were happening. So, I mean, for us, I think that technology, we just launched a new website that has 65,000 objects from our archive um, and also our catalog resume. We're doing digital stories. The website is accessible to uh, the blind. And oh, you know, so we're yeah, working on all of these kinds of things. We obviously have many possibilities for access. But unfortunately, I think in the museum, we probably will not be at the cutting edge of technology Mm -hmm. in the near future, because I think that this is one thing for Noguchi he really stressed was that there should be zero mediation. He wanted people to feel the presence and the physical presence of the work. Because it has aesthetic aesthetic purity that Mm -hmm. you don't want to, it's almost like an energy flow. Yeah, Mm -hmm. exactly. And it's interesting, I mean, we own and run a company that does interacted me for museums, but there are some places I say, well, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. Right. And you know, I had this experience, I think, related to, I was in, I spent a lot of time in Amsterdam and sitting in the, I think it's called the Room, the room of Honor, Hall of Honor, where the Rembrandt night mm-hmm. watches. Yeah. 
and I sp- in the Rijksmuseum. In the Rijksmuseum, yeah. yeah. And I spent like an hour or so there, just sitting there. And it was amazing. Like people would come in, they come up with their girlfriend, they spin around, they take a selfie, and they'd leave. Mm-hmm. You know, and they could have been anywhere. So it could have been a backdrop in Macy's. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I mean, funnily, I, it, I also right? stood in that place and I took a photo that an array of people with their phones that almost looked like the Night Watch. Oh, that's, so it's that's like funny, I mean yeah. I waited until I found this kind of moment, but it was everyone with their phone taking a picture of the painting, but also kind of mimicking the way that it was kind of organized. So this is what we do. I mean I love taking pictures in museums. I'm a big advocate of it. It was so funny. My daughter has a selfie, and in the background is the Mona Lisa. Yeah. And I said, "Look at this." I just thought that was like <laughs> you've gone all the way to Paris, right, and, that, and you missed right. it. It's right there. It was the funniest thing. <laughs> We, we got to talk to that girl. Right. Well, she's coming along. She's <laughs> yeah, coming no, no, along. She's but, you know, but when I think about all that we've been talking about mm-hmm. here, I still think of educational experiences for young people and what you're doing in that space. Because when I was there, I saw maybe a group of eight kids. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they were with someone, but they were from the neighborhood. And yeah. I said, this is really interesting. These kids are in this space. Are they connecting? Because, again, I had to ask why I'm here, what am I looking at, those kinds of questions. Something about that, about belonging. I was just thinking about that. It's almost like temple, if you will. You know what I'm saying? Do I belong to, should I go in there? I thought that it was really interesting because you've got a lot of diversity there among your staff. Mm -hmm. And that is so critically important because when you walk into spaces like that, you want to feel welcome. And I have to say, I felt very well. Everybody was really polite. You could see there was an embodiment of some values there. But if you could talk to us about the educational programs that you have for kids in the New York City public school system. Well, I would say the Noguchi Museum has been actually at the forefront on that on that area for many, many years. We have a very robust uh, group of educators uh, speaking not only Spanish, but Japanese. You know, we, we had a, f- a French. I mean, it's, so, you know, we're catering to the polyglot nature of Queens. Actually, we also have some speaking Chinese, Mandarin and Sichuan. So, you know, I, I think that the museum is probably seeing somewhere between three and 5,000 kids a year. Um, through programs. We have uh, 10 educators that are leading tours constantly. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of hands-on for kids on weekends. And so, you know, we want young people to feel that this museum is a place for them. The the interesting thing I wanted to say is Noguchi designed a lot of playground equipment. He was very interested in children childhood development and the way that children have that kind of wonder and awe of looking at things. One of the things about our museum is you come in and, you know, I've had a lot of friends bring their kids they make a beeline to those stone sculptures and they just want to touch them. Now, of course, they can't. I mean, it, but it's always You do want to kind of just rub. Yeah, you just want to rub up but, it because they're totally <laughs> tactile and there's yes. something about them that they don't, just... They almost draw you in. Like, I'm exactly. touch that. So right, I think right. with Noguchi's work, even though it's abstract, even though it may not look like a figure or something that a kid might be able to recognize, they feel this work in a very profound way. So when kids come, I have to say that they generally really love the museum and they want to come back. We have been talking a lot about, you know, free admission for uh, kids between 15 and 21, a membership program. I mean, we're thinking mm-hmm. about a lot of DEI, you know, kinds mm-hmm. of ways of increasing our audience. And since we are in Queens, I think it's super important for us uh, to be in a situation where we can be give that radical hospitality mm-hmm. that I think is necessary, which is lacking in a lot Ooh, of like big that. institutional radical hospitality. It's a, it's mm. a word. It's a term that we're using mm-hmm. a lot in the museum world today. Okay. And it might mean that we also have to have people outside of our doors mm. inviting people in. Absolutely. You know, because I mean, we are a little bit of a bunker. Just that's the nature of the way that the museum has to operate because of the fact that we are this oasis in the middle of, right. as you said, in like the middle of this bunker. kind of industrial right. yeah, yeah. space. Right. Um, There's a vulnerability there. Yeah. Right. I have Good. a great story about like museums and hospitality. So one of the projects we did was for the National World War II Museum in New Orleans. We did Campaign and Courage and RFID. But there they told me a story about this elderly couple who was visiting the museum but looked very sad. And one of the docents came up to him and says, you know, you seem to be upset. What's happening? He says, well, this, the, you know, we're here for four or five days. This is the first day. We were in a hotel and we got robbed. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Unbeknownst to them, the docents goes to the head of visitor services, tells them the story. They call the City Convention Bureau, Tourist Bureau. 
they arranged them to stay free at mm. another really oh, nice wow. hotel and go down and tell them. Mm. Now, you tell me what museum does this. That's You extreme. won't forget that. No. no. You will no. not forget that. No. That's an incredible story. It's an incredible story. So that's yeah. one of the reasons why they're the one, one of the number one or two, whatever they are, museums right. well, to visit. So. Core values. Yeah. What's your most special place in the museum? Is, or do you have a special place in the well, museum? Well, I think it's the garden. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I have the real luxury of Mondays and Tuesdays when the museum is closed, and particularly in the spring and the summer and the fall, to bring my laptop computer and I have an, a Wi-Fi and I can just go sit out there for an hour or two and answer emails. The garden is a very, very special place. And also at dusk, the starlings that are in the trees come back. <gasps> so you have this really beautiful sound of those birds at about 5 to Sweet. 7.30. There's something quite magical uh, mm-hmm. about that. I also do a lot of walking through the galleries. I mean, there are certain works that I really love. I mean, the other spaces are what we call Area 1 and Area 2, which is right when you come out of our entry gate uh, or our kind of the door and you go into these outdoor indoor galleries where the large stones are. There's something incredibly peaceful about walking into that space that is hmm. just all of your worries, all of your neuroses and anxiety just disappears. <laughs> I also take a boat from work and I take the ferry. Oh, taxi, yeah. you know, so I ferry. have this kind of crazy, like, I feel like I'm going to, you know, Sydney, Australia. Know, I'm like in right? Hong Kong, you know, so right. I have this you... kind of amazing journey to work where I'm going on the reverse commute and I get there. I really encourage people to take the ferries to Astoria and to come that way. It's a great Absolutely. way to get to the Noguchi Museum. You know, I think I'm going to keep that, put that on my yeah. list. Now, you talked about an amazing journey, and it sounds like your career has been an amazing journey. What's been the, what's the thread? You know, or how do, how do each or of these... is it a thread? Yeah, right, hmm. right. Oh, yeah, I've given or a lot connection. Of, I've given a, a lot of thought mm-hmm. to that. Um, <laughs> you know, someone, an artist once described to me, said, you don't have a career, you have a Kareem. You know, <laughs> and I thought, <laughs> okay, well, you know, I mean, I, I, I've given that some thought, and it, it might be true. I, the, the, the through line for me mm-hmm. is... I wanted to be around creative people. I felt that I was a creative person. And really what excited me, I mean, I love knowledge, I love science, I love analytic thinking, but what I really, really enjoy are talking to people who can change the way that I see the world. Um, And that for me was the thing that I wanted to be around artists. I wanted to be around filmmakers. I wanted to be around musicians. I wanted those conversations in my life. So probably I've skewed a little bit towards process and places that made things early in my career. And even PS1 in a way is a place that made exhibitions. We worked a lot with artists and fabricated. Um, The Drawing Center, I brought a little bit of that into the way that we worked. Um, Obviously, drawing is a way of thinking, so I wanted to kind of bring that to the fore. It's so funny. I never thought of drawing as thinking more just doing, being in it. But you're right. It is a way of thinking. Well, the the beautiful thing for me about drawing is it's universal. I mean, we all know how to draw. draw. Right. Right. I mean, whether or not I'm good or bad. I mean, I make a lot of flow charts. I mean, I draw my shows. I I can make you a map. Mind mapping is another way. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Right. And this is why I I really love talking to software engineers about drawing Mm -hmm. because they have a whole different way of thinking about how to connect things up and what visualization means. So and Noguchi, you make this so exciting. Keep going. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I guess that you know the, the end, through visit, line, right? right? Exactly. We'll do part two. But um, you know, the, the the through line for me at Noguchi is that this guy was one of the great creators in so many different fields. Mm-hmm. He didn't care about any of the um, boundaries between design and art and dance, mm-hmm. and he, he he was so fluid and so fearless. Um, and to me, that's what makes him absolutely appealing, and maybe also puts me back in that dialogue with someone whose mind is so um, radical in a way. And I really, really, really appreciate that. So, I mean, I guess if I can say, you know, it's basically that idea of, I want to know how artists think. Hmm. I mean, that's what I've been doing for 26 or 27 years um, in my career. You know, it's interesting about drawing. Drawing is unique because, first of all, it's the oldest art form. The other thing is that it's we know that for sure. Not yeah, drum sure. beats. No, 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 <laughs> for sure. Okay. Well, that's more of a performance art form. But in terms of the visual, visual arts, arts, yeah, yeah. right. Mm-hmm. So it was the scratching. It is foundational. Mm-hmm. The first mm-hmm. one was mm-hmm. the was the spray painting of things of hands on caves, and then mm-hmm. of course scratching mm-hmm. of caves, and mm-hmm. you know. And I, don't, I don't think they had spray paint quite back. I then. was thinking that. Actually, I said, cry they line. Spray <laughs> <paint>. <laughs> it's I on the cry line. I'm let him get by with that. Sorry. I mean, I'm not an art historian, by the way. No, no, but it was their version of it. With yeah, yeah. You know they, I mean? blew. They, they blew. I mean, yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> well, actually, on the Cryline website. <laughs> exactly. It says. <laughs> no, but the thing is about it, it's curious in the other way because uh, it's also 
kind of like the, I, I kind of think of it like it's a direct connection from your visual mm-hmm. and cognitive abilities translated through your nervous system directly onto paper. Yeah. Hmm. More so than painting, sculpture, anything. Mm-hmm. So it's the most direct cognitively mm-hmm. one. But it's also curious in the sense that it's the one skill that most adults still do as children. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So they can they can, you know, navigate things, they can balance the checkbook. Right. But a lot of people draw like kids. Mm-hmm. But you know, one of the it's not a bad thing though. No stick figures, right? I mean, well, <laughs> it's just they didn't have training, or right. you know, they thought they weren't creative, or who knows what it was. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, one of the interesting things about drawing is I had uh, quite a few conversations with artists when I was working on shows, particularly the artist Paul McCarthy, uh, who has dyslexia. So Paul made films. If you know his work, it's quite crazy video work. And sometimes uh, his scripts were essentially series of notebook drawings that he'd just simply rip out and put into a folder. And then he'd give it to the cinematographer. And the cinematographer would have to kind of decipher (laughs) what that was. (laughs) And it's a pretty complicated thing. But also what Paul would do is you would sit down and talk to him. And he had these kind of discussion notebooks. So oftentimes I would sit with him and he'd say, um, I don't know if I can explain this to you, but let me make a drawing. Uh, and then he'd make right. a drawing for me, and he'd be like, do you understand this now? And I'd say, not really, but okay, let me make another one. So he would keep these discussion notebooks as a way to converse, because sometimes it, 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 there were things that were beyond language for him that he could only express in drawing. Um, yeah. And I really appreciated that. And there were several artists that I've had that experience with where it's like you have this kind of revelatory moment mm-hmm. of like, oh my God, you know, I could um, understand. Right. Draw me a picture. Draw me a picture. And I can see it. Yeah. yeah. That happens so much. Yeah. Now, you are running a museum, and now we'll get, I guess we're going to segue into some of the harder things, okay. which are the fundraising. Mm-hmm. So how how has that, how do you approach that? How does that happen? Is, is there a secret sauce that you don't have to tell? But, you know, th- this is a business at the end of the day. Yeah. So... Um, well, I mean, interestingly, uh, the Noguchi Museum is very fascinating the way that it's structured because we are the essentially own the design business. So we have about a $6 million budget. We mm-hmm. have a, a pretty large endowment uh, that we've been able to uh, grow over mm-hmm. the years. Um, we have a lot of earned income coming in from Akari and from the Noguchi table. We work with Vitra and Herman Miller. Uh, we also, of course, do fundraising. Um, we've been growing our board and diversifying our board. So currently the museum is at probably um, a transitional moment. We'll be <laughs> adding some new buildings. Um, the, the museum traditionally was only raising money mostly from the city, uh, not from outside sources. Um, it also wasn't a 501c3 until about a decade ago. Oh, wow. Yeah, mm-hmm. so a foundation mm-hmm. merged with the museum. So it, it's only kind of standing up now for the first time as a teenager, really, uh, in right. terms of how it's going to fundraise. But my, my vision for the museum is I don't think that we need to grow exponentially. I'm not, I'm not a big fan of exponential growth. I, I think that we could um, you know, grow maybe by about 5%, 10%, um, and still deliver what we need to do. Um, I would be interested if we were able to increase our endowment, let's say, to $100 million, that maybe we would start giving money away. There, you know, the, Managing the legacy may only take about $80 million, uh, over the course of many, many years if the stock market does well. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing that's been so fascinating for me is that I'm running this kind of hybrid nonprofit in which I also am an entrepreneur. Um, and I love it. It's you the first time in my career that I've been able to <laughs> not be embarrassed about saying I like the idea of being entrepreneurial in the nonprofit world. Mm-hmm. Usually that's a kind of bad thing. No, but it's um, such a good thing for your survival it, and to well, inspire others that are in the space with you. Absolutely. Right, because that's what it takes. And I've met with now, I would say, 30 artists who are looking at the Noguchi Museum. I mean, famous, famous artists who want to start their own foundations or museums as a model. So we've been talking a lot mm-hmm. about what this model looks like and how it can work. And, you know, Noguchi was very clear that, you know, from time to time, if the museum needed to sell a work, um, Mm -hmm. we were allowed to do that. That's Mm -hmm. part of our mission because he understood that in perpetuity, um, in order for his legacy to continue, maybe not everyone's going to love Noguchi forever. Right. (laughs) You know, so it had to be kind of set up that way. I mean, people joke and say like, oh, Brad, you should get someone should give you an honorary PhD in art history. And I say, no, actually, someone should give me an honorary MBA because I've been running businesses (laughs) for 26 years. You know, at the end of the day, not the nonprofit world, if I can't make my payroll, if I can't fundraise, if I can't, that right. you know, mm-hmm. put in my 5% that I need for growth or 10% or 20%, the whole opera, everything stops. Now, let's talk yeah. a little bit about some of the other artists that he celebrated, th- that the Noguchi has, Museum has celebrated mm-hmm. as well. 
Oh, so the, you do show other mm-hmm. arms. Well, we, we do. Uh, about yeah, seven or eight years ago, um, the board decided that we could go outside of the realm of people that just directly worked with Noguchi or knew him. Right. Um, so the museum has had a history going all the way back to its founding of showing work by people like Buckminster Fuller or people that were very closely aligned with Noguchi. Um, the decision to move past that boundary um, has been very interesting. Um, I think that still the idea is that we want these works to be formally related to Noguchi or related to Noguchi ideas, or the work should allow us to understand something about Noguchi deeper. Yeah, otherwise it's mission drift. Right. Yeah. Um, however, my thinking is that we could probably, right now we're about three concentric circles away from Noguchi. We could probably be six without too many problems. And I think that the idea of you know, the Noguchi purists that maybe were more upset, I mean really upset when we first started showing contemporary art, have kind of eased into this idea that the museum can be a place that can actually look at other artists' work. This is where the values idea comes in because Mm -hmm. I think that there are a lot of artists who share Noguchi's values but may not be familiar with his work. I would rather proselytize rather than putting people through the eye of a needle. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I, I would rather us be out there and say, you know what, we think you would really be interested in Noguchi if you had the opportunity to come here and look at his work and we'd be happy to spend the time to teach you because we're interested in your work. Right, so it's access point and it's right. You know, I mean, today it's more artists who are coming to us and almost writing a PhD and saying like, right. I love Noguchi and I really dig him and I've done so much work and I've really thought about these works and that's a different approach. But um, I mean, art's, art's a living thing. It's not something that's frozen in time. That's, no. That also, what you know, it's, it's influenced by things, it influences other things. Right. And so in some ways, it's, it, by, by bringing in this orthodoxy, mm-hmm. it... Um, you know, sort of freezes it in time and sort of so, takes out of the conversation. Yeah. Of and I like that word freeze because I think the sculpture garden, I mean, the sculptures uh, that if you could talk to us about your experience with that and sure. your experience going forward. Uh, last year, I was invited to do the inaugural uh, free sculpture at Rock Center. It, it turned out to be the largest uh, outdoor sculpture park ever made in New York City. And the reason I think why they called me was that Noguchi in 1938 was commissioned to do his first outdoor piece in New York, major work called News, which still exists on the uh, facade of 50 Rock Center, which was the old AP building, Associated uh, Press building. Right, that, I, know this, I know that piece. Yeah, big stainless yeah. steel. It was actually at the time the largest stainless steel uh, bas-relief ever made. Um, I gave a lot of thought about what public art means today, mm-hmm. what it would mean to make a sculpture park in an urban environment, what it means in terms of scale and in human scale, um, what it would mean to create a diverse, uh, both in terms of race, in terms mm-hmm. of gender, in terms of uh, geography, um, a dialogue between lots and lots of artists uh, that would create something that would be beyond just simply uh, the plopping down of sculptures outdoors. Mm-hmm. So I really was conscious of that. Everything was contextualized with either something that already existed in Rock Center or something, a, a history that we could bring forward. Um, and I ended up putting, uh, I think we had 14 artists and 20 works last mm-hmm. year, and I'm working on the new one uh, this year, and it will be about a similar number of artists and similar number of works. But the theme for this year is the Elgin Garden. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Um, the Elgin Garden was actually the original location of uh, Rock Center. Um, it was the first botanical garden found in 1801 by Dr. Hozak, uh, who was the attending physician at the Burr and Hamilton duel. So it's, oh, wow. it spanned between Ooh. 5th and 6th Avenue and 49th and 51st Street. And he built a big uh, greenhouse and he had 3,000 plants there. Hmm. Um, many people went to visit Thomas Jefferson, many, many famous scientists. And he also was the first person to do medicinal plants uh, and think about them in terms of pharmaceuticals. So a lot of moder- modern medicine right. Right. comes out of four, the research but, that right. he did. Um, so it's a super interesting um, idea mm-hmm. that there was this huge botanical garden in the middle of the city, but no one knows about it. So I'm going to do a show with a lot of botanical plant sculptures, um, a lot of people using organic material as the basis for their work. Oh, that's going to be fascinating. Yeah. So I think it'll be interesting to kind of bring back that uh, that urban archaeology. Mm-hmm. We should get invites to the opening. Yeah, you will. <laughs> on, uh, yes, uh, Earth, yes, Earth Day, yes, April, April 22nd. Good, you'll right, definitely right. be invited. Oh, Earth Day? Yeah. Oh, my goodness yeah. gracious. So we have a couple of minutes left. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Two, three. Right. Anything we didn't cover? Anything else with the, you know, I mean, I, you know, before we sort of wrap up, I, I mean, I've been there and I tell you, it's really an amazing place. And uh, Serena is a great way to describe it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's I, magical I have a, in a lot of ways. A, a I have a te- question. Actually, before go you go, ahead. I have a go technical ahead. question, which okay, is. Okay, go right ahead. And I saw this when I, I, many years ago, I worked in Greece. So I did a restoration of a 19th century sailing ship in Piraeus. 
And they, at that time, they were trying to fix the Parthenon because the rods that held the sta stones together were iron and they were rotting, so they were replacing them with stainless. But if you look at a lot of the Gucci pieces, they have like different stones mm -hmm. that are seamlessly connected, but there must be something inside that holds them together. Um, he often used uh, steel rods. Um, there, there are but many did, different right? ways, uh, that, but sometimes he also just balanced things. Balance and is it glue or anything? Or no, nothing. No. It's just the connection that's fascinating. Yeah. Right. I wanted to ask you, because uh, I saw this throughout the website, and it, you talk so much about honoring diversity and affirming the value of each individual's unique interpretations. Mm -hmm. So because, you know, I think that would be a great place for us to close speak about that. Well, I think if you, um, if you took a docent tour uh, at the museum or an educator tour, they have a very, we have a very specific pedagogy about how we want you to kind of experience the work. Um, and I think it is a very personal and subjective way. Hmm. Um, we're not going to give you uh, any kind of um, overarching way that you should experience so it. So non-judgmental, right? Non However I experience and is how I experience it. Exactly. Right? And also our educators asks you, ask you a lot of questions. Mm -hmm. So it's, this is not about lecturing to you about one particular way. Um, and I think that that's probably for Noguchi at the end of the day. He, he said that sculpture should be useful in society. I mean, it's very strange to think about that. Usually we think of sculpture as something that the artist has made and maybe someone, you know, goes to a museum and people can enjoy it, the public. But he actually wanted to be a useful object in our society because if you that's think true. about religious sculptures, uh, the, you know, the Parthenon, I mean, think, you know, major sculptures. Shrines, this was about community right. building. Mm -hmm. But it's it also about community building. It was about community mm -hmm. building. It's the original I mean, function of art. Was yeah, exactly. You know, uh, yeah. Go ahead. I forgot. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's Community right. building. Interesting. Oh, I know what I was saying. Yes. I would say mm -hmm. that in some ways, though, and this is a challenging part, not just from Noguchi, but a lot of museums, just the concept of museum to a certain extent is the self-selecting audiences. Because I know a lot of kids in certain neighborhoods would, you know, teenagers mm -hmm. would never consider it. Mm -hmm. Not because it's boring or anything, just because it, it's not for me. So, right. You know, I think one of the greatest challenges, not just you, but all museums, is how do you reach this audience? How do you get them inspired? I think I think art and those things has great value for them. But, you know, I guess it has to be made more accessible somehow, and I yeah. guess you have to reach them where they are. No? I, I, and if I can just say, I really think that that museum does a great job with it in the sense that you can go in and be. Mm -hmm. And so often we're, especially with young people and even folks that aren't as young, we're, we're more into doing, getting things done. This is that place where you can just be. So I really respect that you're limiting, that the visitor experience, that you're not trying to grow it. Because I think something would be lost. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I want to be. I want to be able to sit in there. See, the day I went, it was raining, and some of the rain was just, it was something different. But I could appreciate it, and like I said, I just felt it. And I want to also say that I'm so glad someone like you with the values that you have, with the clarity of perspective that you have, with the excitement and passion mm -hmm. that you have, is running this marvelous institution. And we're just looking forward to more from you, meaning you've just inspired me as I'm sitting here to just think differently. Well, thank you. Yes. I'm really, I appreciate it. It's a great place to go to work every day, and I'm really honored to be the director of that institution. So. And, and we were honored to have you. Thank so, you. So I'm Tony Williams. And this is Alexis Lansky. And find some art that moves you and share it with somebody.